Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Sources. Inside Sources with Lloyd Matheson. Is America really that polarized? Of course, social media would have us believe that we're living through the beginning of the end of the American experiment, that we're on our way to neighbor versus neighbor. But here's the question. If, if we are so polarized, what's the answer? Is the answer more yelling and screaming at each other? Or are the institutions found in the Constitution uh, and those institutions that have preserved us along the way, are they the key for moving things forward? Andy Smerick is the senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute where his work focuses on education and civil society. He has a great piece in the dispatch today in defense of norms and institutions. This is a crucial conversation. Listen closely. Andy, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's dive into this. Uh, obviously, uh, with the leak of the first full draft of the majority opinion in the Dobbs versus uh, Jackson's women's health abortion case, uh, everything is all over the map in terms of reaction to that. I think there's two separate issues that have to be dealt with. You know, one is the, the decision itself, what that will be. We still don't know. Uh, but that will be one debate for sure. The other will be the, the leak and the process and the institution itself. Uh, and so give us some perspective, Andy, uh, from your role and what you do at the Manhattan Institute uh, in terms of some of those norms and institutions we should be looking to uh, to help us through, again, this perceived, if not real, divided time. Sure. Thank you. Well, I think the big thing to keep in mind is that we are not the first people. Uh, we are not the first generation to face massive challenges. Uh, we have lots of predecessors who came before us who were dealing with different types of problems, many of the same, but uh, every era has its different challenges. But thank goodness they came before us and they were smart and they set up all these institutions. And we can think of an institution as being anything from democracy to civility and accommodation to actual organizations like Congress and courts, uh, legislatures and libraries. And all of these types of organizations in American society help this remarkable nation that we have actually function. They give us ways to work out our differences, to uh, create policy, to figure out criminal justice, and so on. And along the line, uh, all of these institutions come up with norms of behavior that enable them to do what they need to do so we can succeed. And so this leak at the Supreme Court was such a big deal because uh, for 200 years it has just been standard operating procedure. The justices get to um, ruminate and have conversations 
conversations in private, and uh, they reach conclusions, they vote on this, and then it's made public, this leak of this, um, what we assume to be a majority opinion or something close to it, uh, the leak of that is unprecedented, and it could upend the way the court does its work, and uh, other types of courts as well. Yeah, one of the things that I've been uh, wondering as this is rolled out is obviously this decision uh, has to be finalized and done. That's that's one issue. Uh, there are also a host of other pretty big deal items still on the docket for the Supreme Court, including some religious liberty pieces, uh, prayer, Second Amendment, uh, and, and a few others. Uh, with that lack of, of trust or that being guarded or worried that something you're going to say or share is going to you know end up uh, on a website or on the front page somewhere, uh, that's not good for the health of the institution. Absolutely. And I'm so happy you brought that up. So, yes. So, first of all, the number of cases that are high stakes that are coming down the pike, I mean, it's remarkable. Every court case, excuse me, every court term has major cases, but we're dealing right now with abortion. Uh, maybe the most important guns case since the famous Heller case from um, almost, you know, a half generation ago um, that really established the Second Amendment, so the individual right to carry arms. We have affirmative action coming down the line as well with the Harvard case, this religious liberty case um, implicating school choice. So all of these things require the court to hear briefs, uh, to read briefs, to have these um, oral arguments, and then to contemplate, to collaborate with one another, to reach the best conclusion possible. And if now the new operating procedure is you have clerks releasing documents that just changes the entire um, mindset of justices, how they can talk with one another, what they share, what they don't share. And uh, from my time in public office, uh, a number of different public roles, I've noticed that there are important rules in almost every institution related to deliberation and privacy before a decision is made. And sometimes these are called deliberative documents. Sometimes uh, you can go into executive session to do things. All institutions need some time where the people who are making decisions have privacy. And if this, what happened in the Dobbs case with this leak of the draft opinion, is the new normal, everything's going to change. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the outcomes or the downstream consequences uh, of this kind of leak is that it actually prevents persuasion from happening. Uh, if there is such a level of distrust, if everyone is worried about all of those things, uh, one of the things you you argue in your piece is that uh, not only you know the outcomes are important, uh, how we get to those outcomes matter as well. Uh, and I think especially when it comes to the Supreme Court. Being able to have a space where persuasion can happen, where listening can happen, where sharpening of arguments or application of law happens. And, and all of the justices seem to revel in that and to enjoy that process and, and have respect for that process. Uh, and my worry is if we, if we lose that, uh, trust seems to be the coin of the realm uh, when it comes to the Supreme Court. If we lose that, uh, doesn't that ultimately mean we're going to get, uh, results or rulings that are not as good as they could be? Absolutely. And we have uh, we have evidence of this from other institutions. So mm. C-SPAN did a whole lot of good when it came along and started uh, putting cameras in the uh, both chambers uh, of Congress and then put 
cameras and committee hearings. And that was great for transparency, but it fundamentally changed the behavior of members of Congress. And I've seen this from my time in government. When people know that there are reporters around, when there are cameras around, they behave differently. And when they know that the memos that they create or the arguments that they make are going to be made public, um, they behave differently. So a lot of honesty and trust and working out of ideas immediately goes away. All of us know this in our private lives. If we're on camera, if people are filming us, we behave differently than when we feel comfortable and private and we can collaborate with people and work things out. And so it has been this wonderful thing that the court, they hear the cases, they read the briefs, and then they go quiet for a couple months on a case where these nine justices who even when it comes to their deliberations, there's a room where only the nine justices go right after the case is heard. Even clerks aren't allowed in there where they deliberate about this. And then they craft memos for one another. If all of that now is um, fair game and out in the open, the way they talk to one another, the way they develop ideas, the way they argue in a productive way, it all changes. And that norm has been important. And this is why my argument is we have to understand why these norms exist. So important. And just real quick, uh, how do we how do we get to better conversations and making our institutions and our civil society uh, just a little bit better? Well, part of this is just personal behavior. We have to uh, be civil and accommodating in our own conversations and recognize that every one of us is flawed and fallen. So uh, free speech and uh, treating other people fairly uh, and listening to them makes our own arguments better, but then also enables other people to make mistakes. And so we can have these conversations and learn from one another. And it also means in our institutions, creating space for people to work things out in private. And obviously, final decisions need to be made public. We need transparency in government. Uh, but having I mean, this cancel culture stuff that we've been dealing with for the past couple of years is so toxic because if people don't feel like they can make mistakes or talk to one another, it just changes the way that we work with one another. So we need to be honest and forthright, forthright and respectful, but we also have to show some grace and yeah. understanding. Uh, we all make mistakes, and um, uh, that's just a part of living together. Uh, we have to deal with that. So this era that we're in, almost a new puritanism where people don't want to have conversations where they want to scold one another. It's bad for democracy. It's bad for e pluribus unum. We're That's different. Right. There are many of us. We have to somehow come together. Uh, fantastic. Andy Smerich, the senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Fantastic insight. Great piece today. I look forward to having you back to continue the conversation real soon. Coming up, we'll talk about clean energy. What is the secret sauce? We're going to give it to you. Coming up next. Stay with us. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. 
In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.